I'd love a lockable door. Like I've had people walk in my room and want a safe place to, st to sleep. Now on the news hour, new hope for the homeless and anyone living in the midst of encampments. These challenges, uh, to state the obvious, are real and significant. The social housing on offer and questions on the cost plus. Medicine's always been sort of my lifelong dream. So why is it still so hard to obtain in BC? The struggle of just one aspiring doctor of many. There's approximately over 3,000 of us right now who have gone through all the licensing exams. Still fighting red tape and... And arachnophobia is very treatable. The artistic arachnid creeping out some commuters. I'm not an arachnophobe, so I, I thought it was amazing when I saw it. Whose fate of being squashed may not be sealed after all. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening, thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with breaking news from the Fraser Valley and another brazen shooting in a very public place in Chilliwack this weekend. Chris Dow joins us now live with details on this. Chris, so the circumstances of this latest shooting are still sort of unclear tonight. What do we know? Yeah, Sarah, that's exactly right. And that's why Chilliwack RCMP are asking for help from the public tonight in getting a better handle on this investigation. What they can confirm is two victims were found suffering from multiple gunshot wounds last night at the entrance to Rotary Trail Park in Chilliwack. Multiple reports of gunfire were called in just after 8 o'clock. Both victims are now in hospital with serious injuries. The incident appears to be targeted and, and, and investigators believe it may be linked to the ongoing lower mainland gang conflict. Now Chilliwack RCMP are asking to speak to any witnesses or anyone who has information on a white Dodge Ram pickup truck seen in the area around the time of the shooting, Sarah. Okay, and we'll have more details in this developing story as we get them. Chris Dow, thank you. There appears to be new hope tonight for those living in homeless encampments and their neighbors. With a joint announcement from the province and the city of Vancouver. The promise is hundreds of new housing units available in a matter of months. But as Julie Nolan explains, it's still unclear just how much the coordinated plan will cost. These challenges, uh, to state the obvious, are real and significant. And they are bigger than just Vancouver. They impact our entire region. It's much needed safe housing for residents of the downtown east side. This includes two new temporary supportive housing projects with 89 homes and a mix of renovated SRO units and supportive homes at other locations. Rolling out by June, 330 new units, which includes temporary units on Ash Street, plus additional temporary housing to be constructed on Western Street. Outreach workers are actively connecting with people sleeping outdoors to make sure that they know that these shelters and services are available to them as we build long-term housing and as it opens. Both the province and the city say the response plan is also meant to help address the fire risk in tents on Hastings and Crab Park. And so a new multidisciplinary team will also help to deliver a more coordinated response where it's needed most. More community integration specialists to work on the streets directly with people who are homeless and getting them the supports they need providing new seamless substance use treatment options at St. Paul's Hospital by the fall through the new road to recovery model. From those on the front lines, the plan now in motion could not come soon enough. The overdoses 
couldn't be worse. Uh, the drugs couldn't be worse. There's been more 911 calls than ever before. For those who are homeless, safety is key. Not just safe and clean drinking water, but also the ability to stay secure at night. I'd love a lockable door. Like I've had people walk into my room and want a safe place to, st to sleep. Uh, working together and under their leadership and their coordination, we will continue to make meaningful progress and we will see a better and safer and more prosperous downtown east side in the future. Both levels of government hope to make the bulk of those transitions to safe housing by the end of June. Despite our request, the ministry did not disclose the total amount that the response plan will cost. Julie Nolan, Global News. And still on the topic of social housing, we are learning more about the process that a long-awaited forensic audit of BC housing ordered by the province is undergoing before it's released to the public. Our Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this, Keith. No doubt this will be a big and heated topic of discussion when the legislature resumes tomorrow. Oh, yeah. After a two-week break, mm -hmm. they're back at it tomorrow. So first question period. I expect the Liberals to be all over this in question period. So here's the background. BZ Housing is a crown corporation scheduled, uh, budgeted to spend about $800 million in the coming fiscal year. Its board was suddenly fired last July out of the blue. After a number of executives had left, questions were being raised about how they're spending their money, a lot of it on the downtown east side. Then Ernst & Young was brought in to do a forensic audit. And after that, uh, again, we've got a, a different audit from the BC Comptroller, General. That's the report that landed on Ravi Kalon's desk last Monday. Uh, he says he's committed to releasing this with as little redaction as possible, but he says the people who are named in the report, and many of them may be named in unflattering uh, terms, and it could include agencies as well, have the right to look at this report and respond if need be. Here's the minister at that news conference today. And my goal is to release the report uh, with as little redaction as, uh, as possible. Uh, we'll go through the process which I've laid out, which is under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which is uh, taking the report to uh, uh, the entities that may be named in the report, giving them an opportunity to provide comment. Uh, if we hear back that, uh, that there's no concerns, uh, then we'll release the report without any redactions, uh, But because I believe it's in the interest of the public to have it in that way. Um, but of course, I know there's a legal process and we want to follow that closely. So the minister went a little further, a little farther today than he did on Friday, mentioning that if people don't, are, don't have any concerns, then the report will be released without redactions. But if they do have concerns, he seems to be opening the door that perhaps if they have concerns, their names may be redacted. We'll find more out tomorrow at that question period. I expect the Liberals again to make this issue front and center. Mm -hmm. A lot more to come on this, Shirley Keith Baldry. Thanks. In just a few days, the federal government will drop its budget, which is expected to have a strong focus on health care, clean energy and curbing inflation. So what can British Columbians and Canadians expect to see delivered by Ottawa on Tuesday? Taria Isri has a preview. Canadians likely won't toast a change coming this week. Taxes are going up 6% on beer, wine and alcohol. I just look at whatever's on sale. That's what I try and do. So I'm cutting down on meat. <laughs> Meat and wine. <laughs> well, everything's going up nowadays. Inflation's insane. Inflation is slowing, but not quickly enough. So economists are recommending a beer and not champagne budget. We could be on the, on the cusp of something that looks like a soft landing or maybe a mild recession. And for the government, that's, those are kind of two, a somewhat difficult scenario to plan for. The federal deficit has fallen, but major bank failures in the U.S. and Europe are not helping the global economic outlook. 
Finance Minister Christia Freeland acknowledges the challenges and is promising to help Canadians who are scraping by. Our government will deliver additional targeted inflation relief. Financial experts predict that targeted relief could be another GST rebate. Economists say the government needs to strike a balance. Don't overspend, but don't stop spending money either and risk losing Canada's competitive edge. The Liberals are trying to lure investment by positioning Canada as a major player in electric vehicle manufacturing. One of the largest line items has already been unveiled. The healthcare funding deal reached with the provinces adds up to $196 billion over 10 years. Much less than the premiers asked for. The Liberals are expected to expand the low-income dental care program as part of their supply and confidence agreement with the new Democrats. The federal government uh, needs to, to walk that line of keeping spending very targeted, otherwise they do risk making the Bank of Canada's job that much harder. A risky economic environment without a lot of room for error. Taria Isri, Global News, Ottawa. A fire that destroyed a downtown Eastside building yesterday is now considered suspicious. The Vancouver Police Arson Unit is investigating the circumstances that led to Saturday's fire in the 500 block of East Hastings. The fire spread to the building's roof, but crews managed to save it from reaching social housing next door. As of Sunday afternoon, no suspects were in custody. The building was being used by several food trucks as a shared commissary kitchen, according to the owner of one restaurant who says his business is now closed until further notice. An update now to a story we brought you last night. Three pedestrians are injured, one seriously, after they were struck by a vehicle on the downtown east side yesterday evening. It happened just after 7 p.m. on East Hastings near Campbell Avenue. Vancouver police say the driver of a westbound white Nissan hit three pedestrians in the intersection. All three were hospitalized, one with serious injuries, the other two with what are described as non-life-threatening injuries. The driver stopped at the scene and is cooperating with the investigation. Speed and impairment are not believed to be factors in the collision. I had heard the sound of the accident, rushed out to the scene to see if I could uh, do any first aid, but it was already swarming with people. Apparently there was a doctor and nurse uh, right across, uh, across the street. They jumped in, so like I said, by the time I got there, the community and involvement was huge. Three people lying on the ground, one of them had a bleeding head injury. Um, the car, the car's window was like the whole windshield was completely like crazed and, and smashed in. Um, the people were conscious and trying to move around at that time. A lot of people were saying, keep still. 32 years after Michael Dunahy vanished without a trace on Vancouver Island, Victoria police say they are still dedicated to solving one of the most enduring and heartbreaking mysteries in BC history. That's what keeps me and my wife going. That's what keeps our hope alive. Hundreds of supporters joined Michael's parents, Bruce and Crystal, at the 32nd annual Keep the Hope Alive event in Michael's honour in Esquimalt today. Michael was just four years old when he disappeared on this day, March 24th in 1991. He was headed for the playground at a local elementary school when his parents took their eyes off of him for just a moment. Despite a massive search and a sweeping police investigation that generated thousands of tips, there's been no sign of him ever since. When Michael first disappeared, there was, there was nothing to support families. 
There was, but it was so spread out and unorganized. With Michael's disappearance, it kind of brought everybody, all the different organizations together to, to work together as a whole. It's all about hope. There's hope for, for Michael and hope for all of the missing children. It's really, really important that we give some answers to the family. This has been an ongoing investigation for the Victoria Police Department. It's one of Canada's largest missing person investigations when it was first launched. Over the years, investigators have shared a number of age-enhanced sketches of Michael, the most recent one released just in 2021. Michael would now be 36 years old. If your regular evening commute includes the Massey Tunnel, get ready for some major delays in the coming weeks. As of tonight, maintenance work will begin on the tunnel every night for the next two weeks. Commuters can expect to see single-lane traffic from 8 p.m., to 5 a.m. One lane will remain open at all times until that work wraps up on April 7th. And another traffic-related warning for motorists who frequent North Delta and Surrey. Construction on a new water main set to start tomorrow along Scott Road and Nordell Way will cause partial lane closures, with crews expected to be on site at that intersection for the next three weeks at least. Next on the news hour, one aspiring doctor's years-long journey of navigating red tape. I can't tell you how, how difficult it's been these last three years, um, not knowing what the future holds for you. Why is it still so complicated to train as a doctor in this province in the midst of a dire healthcare worker shortage? Plus. An uprising in Israel, the mass protests in the streets tonight as a high-ranking official who broke ranks is fired. The latest from Tel Aviv coming up. Stay with us. The dire lack of doctors working in family practice in this province and beyond, you would think the barriers to becoming a working physician may have eased by now. There's been a lot of talk about increased funding to train healthcare professionals, but that hasn't helped one med school grad who's been waiting for years to obtain a residency. And he's not alone. Here's Travis Prasad. In hopes of becoming a family doctor, Mahir Mohammed went to medical school in Ukraine, where his previous post-secondary credits were recognized and tuition was far lower than anywhere in Canada. And medicine's always been sort of my lifelong dream. After graduating in 2018, the Maple Ridge man returned to B.C. and completed the Canadian licensing exams. Since 2021, he's been trying to secure the two-year residency required to practice medicine in the country. He says when he applied, approximately 3,000 residency spots opened up each year for aspiring family doctors, but just 10% of them were reserved for foreign graduates. There's approximately over 3,000 of us right now who, are, who have gone through all the licensing exams and jumped through all the hoops and were... Uh, perfectly qualified to start residency, but the problem is there's only 300 seats a year for us. In the United States, foreign and local grads compete for the same residency spots, but even if Canada followed that model, Mohammed says... That's really not going to address the healthcare crisis that we're in right now, because ultimately we're still only going to get 3,000 people through residency each year. The 17 medical schools in Canada say family medicine residency programs aren't close to keeping up with the growing population and want the feds to help provincial governments fund more seats. By increasing the number of residency positions uh, by the few hundred across the country over the next few years, that actually would help us manage the, um, the, the backlog. 
a backlog that has contributed to hours-long wait times at B.C. hospitals and abrupt closures of ERs in rural areas. The B.C. government says it's pouring millions of dollars into growing B.C.'s only medical school, saying in a statement its health human resources strategy will see UBC increasing its undergraduate medical school intake by 40 and its residency program by up to 88, adding 128 new annual seats. Meanwhile, after three years of uncertainty, Mohammed learned last week he's finally landed a residency in Prince George. He and his family will move there in a couple of months. We're so ecstatic. I can't tell you how, how difficult it's been these last three years um, not knowing what the future holds for you. He says he's one of the fortunate ones, but hopes changes are made so other qualified doctors don't need luck on their side just to work. Travis Prasad, Global News. Back to that breaking news in Vancouver's Chinatown happening now where crews are on scene fighting a fire behind the Chinese Cultural Centre. Shortly after 5 o'clock this evening, flames and heavy smoke could be seen coming from the alley behind the Chinese Cultural Centre on Pender between Carroll and Columbia Streets. Firefighters were able to quickly contain the fire, but the area itself, as you can see, remains saturated with smoke. Just a few minutes before flames broke out, surveillance footage shows a person in the alley near the spot where the fire later erupted. We do have a crew on scene and we'll bring you the latest details on this as we get it. Next on the news hour, Edmonton prepares to lay two officers killed in the line of duty to rest. Plus, I also go out onto the streets of downtown and um, talk with everybody because I know how it is. I was on the streets there. An inspiring story of survival, a young mother's journey from life on the streets to success. And Nexus interviews are finally set to begin again. NBC will tell you when and what the holdup was for Canadian applicants. That's after the break. In Alberta, two Edmonton police officers killed in the line of duty earlier this month will be laid to rest tomorrow. A regimental funeral and procession will take place on Monday for Constables Travis Jordan and Brett Ryan. Both young men were shot and killed by a 16-year-old when they responded to a family dispute at an apartment complex. The teen then killed himself after his mother was seriously injured. Thousands of first responders are expected to participate in tomorrow's procession in downtown Edmonton. If you are among the tens of thousands of Canadians waiting to obtain your Nexus approval, finally some positive news on that front tonight for you. As of tomorrow, enrollment centres in some Canadian airports will once again reopen for sit-down applicant interviews. A staggered reopening will follow at six other airports where Nexus is offered. That includes Vancouver on April 3rd. Registration for the program has been on pause in Canada for nearly a year because of a diplomatic dispute over American border agents carrying firearms on Canadian soil. The result? A massive backlog in applicants expected to take more than a year to process, with some 270,000 Canadians said to be waiting for approval. To a developing situation underway in Israel tonight, where mass protests have broken out in its most populous city. In Tel Aviv, thousands of demonstrators have flooded the streets and the area outside Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's home 
hours after he abruptly fired his defense minister, who opposed a highly contested plan for a judicial overhaul. Main highways and streets are blocked, with protests expected to continue well into the morning. Those polarizing proposed changes to the judicial system would give the government control over the appointment of judges and allow Parliament to override Supreme Court decisions. On Saturday, Netanyahu's now-ousted defense minister broke ranks and urged the government to put an end to the overhaul. Safe supply was a hot topic at a recent forum on addiction in Prince George, with advocates maintaining the program is making a big difference for many drug users in north-central B.C. And as Caden Fanshawe of CKPG News reports, a young mother is sharing her personal struggle with addiction to offer hope to others. Suboxone is what really saved my life. Tannis West was once here, walking the streets and back alleys looking for her next high, now she's a living success story of BC's safe supply strategy to curb the toxic drug crisis. The withdrawals were so bad coming off of the drugs that uh, I was almost going into seizures. So I props to the people that did go cold turkey, but for myself, I was not able to. The young mother's healing journey has led her to the first ever Northern Addictions Forum in Prince George as a guest speaker to tell her story. What I want to do going forward is just to share my story and um, help others because I also go out onto the streets of downtown and um, talk with everybody because I know how it is. I was on the streets there. I was my, there myself and how I got cold-shouldered by people and looked at me differently. But, um, yeah, just giving them a smile and a hello, how are you doing, how's your day? Um, is something that I wanted on the streets. So, Tannis was almost part of a statistic in this toxic drug crisis, revived 10 times in just one month. According to the First Nations Health Authority, Northern and Interior First Nations people have the highest rates of drug deaths across all of B.C. I think it's critical, um, especially here in the northern region. Um, one of the major issues um, that we're facing is that even people who uh, do want to try to access this uh, opiate agonist therapy are unable to because of things like geographical barriers. The province's safe supply strategy has only been going on since March 2020. Still much work to do before it goes fully as intended, but there is hope as this mother of a five-month-old son will tell you. And it makes me stronger each, each time I tell my story. Um, and I just want others to know that, like, you can, you can get better. And, um, like, I haven't went through treatment yet, but I'm still taking that step to go. And um, you, could, you could do this. Just, you just need to want it for yourself. Caden Fanshawe, CKPG News. Coming up, Yvonne and Barry join us with Weather and Sports, plus patrons of a beloved and legendary fish and chips restaurant count down the days left for one of its wildly popular locations. That's after the break. Stay with us. You're watching Global BC. 
Welcome back. We are certainly feeling the transition of the seasons this weekend with a mix of snow and sun over the past two days. Meteorologist Yvonne Schell joins us now with a look at the week ahead in weather. Yvonne. And it's a big week back to work mm -hmm. and school for many now after spring break and we're actually going to see a fair bit of sunshine. I'll show you that in just a moment but this evening we are seeing a bit more cloud cover that will roll in. Slight chance for some showers will be in the mix and wet flurries for higher elevations. We're currently sitting at nine. We've got that easterly wind at nine kilometers per hour. There's the potential we're seeing it across the island as well. Any of the precipitation that we do see will be light, not much in terms of accumulation, but it is still going to be unsettled. That takes us in towards the morning hours. Big weather story though in the coming days. Ridge of high pressure starts to build. We'll benefit with plenty of sunshine in the mix. Did want to outline, so overnight temperatures will be cold. We'll be down to two wet flurries. Bundle up if you're heading out the front door for tomorrow morning, but then by the afternoon it warms up. We've got a range in temperatures with the sunshine between 10 away from the water will be closer to 15 degrees. If you're traveling along the mountain pass as a quick update, a few isolated flurries. The Rogers Pass could see up to two and four centimeters and the Kootenai Pass between two and four will be for this evening and then tapering off to flurries as we look ahead towards tomorrow. Wanted to also outline if you do have any respiratory issues, Bulkley Valley and the lakes, we've got a dust advisory that still remains in effect across that region. Temperature trend in the coming days with that ridge away from the water. We could see temperatures between 16 and up to 17 degrees. A great stretch between Tuesday leading in towards our Thursday and then a bit of a change on the way will start to kick in by Friday. So if you're making plans for the week, our overnight lows with clear conditions, though, do keep in mind it'll still be chilly. We'll be starting off closer to the freezing mark for many areas and then bumping up into the double digits by the afternoon. Northern half of the province with that sunshine along the coast will be up to 10 degrees, much of the central interior overnight tonight for Prince George minus nine and then up to one through the day. Southern interior have left in that cloud covering a few spots for the Columbian Kootenai region for the morning hours. Wet flurries breaks as we get in through the day. Thompson Okanagan though still highs closer to 12 degrees and Whistler could also still see a few wet flurries. Inland across the island and a few spots along the eastern regions. It'll be cold enough for the morning hours. Higher elevations we could see that across the lower mainland as well. Wet flurries breaks clearing through the afternoon in the Coming days, we've got plenty of sunshine. It's going to warm up away from the water. Sarah, Wednesday, Thursday, even highs between 16 and 17 degrees. Back to you. Okay, hard to believe. Looking beautiful next week. Thanks so much, Yvonne. We'll see you soon. For more than two decades, locals have flocked to Pod Joe's in Steveston to get their fish and chips fixed. But now its lease is up and the city of Richmond has chosen another vendor to operate the takeout window. Here's Krista Dow on the fried fish stands farewell and its fight to stay. If you ask the locals, there are few places that can fry fish and chips quite like Pajos. When I want fish and chips in Greater Vancouver, this is the place I come to, right here. We always come here. But after 23 years, Pajos at Gary Point Park in Steveston will be closing its doors forever. I just heard about that and I'm kind of gutted to be honest with you. We ride our bikes out here and there's lots of room and you know, we quite enjoy it. How shall I say, a, a, a Richmond historical place. And when you're sitting here and you have that view of the Gulf Islands and the ocean and you've got world-class fish and chips, 
this is this is heaven. That proverbial gate to heaven now under lock and key by the city of Richmond, which has chosen a new vendor to operate at that location starting this spring. In a statement, the city says that vendor scored higher than Pagels when it came to key considerations, including menu options, pricing, commitment to circular economy practices and sustainability, environmental responsibility and customer service. The bitter news hard to swallow for not only longtime patrons, but staff members. 178. We're all just devastated because, like I say, I've got um, challenged people here. I've got others from different countries that were refugees that, uh, you know, are going to find it hard to get another job. We are truly more of a family here than people can realize. Many of the employees soon to be without a job with limited options to relocate. We're trying to work them into the other locations, but it came at a bad time because they've already hired. It's so sad. Like, it's been like here, it says like 23 years. Padro's flagship location at the wharf in Steveston will remain open, as well as its two other locations in the lower mainland. The last day for Padro's Gary Point Park is on Friday, March 31st. Krista Dow, Global News. Okay, we have a few days, guys, to go get some fish and chips. Now I just really want fish and chips. See, everyone at home's eating dinner. We have not, so that looks really good. We're so hungry over here. Good to see you, Barry. Yeah, good to see you guys. What's going on this morning? Well, the Canucks seem to be hungry to not have a number one draft pick from Vancouver because they just keep on winning. They're actually in danger of finishing so high up in the standings, they won't even have a chance in the Bedard lottery. Only the top 11 teams have a chance because you can only move up 10 if you win it. So they, right now they have a sliver of a hope to get it if they stay where they are, but the way they're playing, they could yeah. be in that spot that's never any good. You don't make the playoffs and you don't have the greatest draft pick. So right. they've been real good at finishing in what we call draft purgatory over the last <laughs> few years. And, but they do look good. And if that continues next year, great, but I don't know. It's mixed emotion, I think, for a lot Some of fans. Bittersweet wins, yeah, for sure. Yeah, very much. That's a good mm. way to put it. Okay, thank you both. We will see you soon. Coming up, a very big birthday for a Vancouver landmark. We're the third oldest hotel. We opened in 1913 together with the Sylvia Hotel. The hotel that has seen a lot in its years and it's still thriving. What the St. Regis still stands for at over a century old. That's after the break. This is BC with Jay Durand is brought to you by JM Media. Visit jmmedia.ca. It is a milestone year for one of Vancouver's oldest and most iconic hotels. The St. Regis has stood the test of time in the downtown core through renovations and reinventions. Here's Jay Durand with tonight's This is BC. Well over a century of history. Welcome to St. Regis. Come on in. For 110 years, the St. Regis Hotel has been welcoming guests in downtown Vancouver. We're the third oldest hotel. We opened in 1913 together with the Sylvia Hotel. We are Canadian owned and operated. Uh, so, and we are a single standalone hotel that has been able to survive for 100, 110 years. It's been a long journey with many different chapters. The hotel has hosted comedy shows and exotic dancing. It was a place for off-track betting and the sponsor of a pro hockey team during the Second World War. 
Larry Kwong uh, was the star of the team and he ended up playing for the New York Rangers in 1948, I think. And St. Regis has had its share of celebrity guests. One of my biggest thrills was Lady Gaga stayed with us at the beginning of her career and we had reporters lined up in the hotel that wanted to see her. It was, it was quite something, yes. The hotel underwent an $11 million renovation in 2008 and more upgrades a few years back. Next up, revamping the historic sign out front. We're approaching the Heritage Committee in the city, uh, you know, to make sure that we do it according to uh, their expectations. A beacon for travelers and an enduring fixture for a hotel now in its 12th decade of operation. There we go. You're Thank welcome. You. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Jay Durant, Global News. If you have a great local story idea for Jay, email us at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. After the break, Barry's back with sports, plus the spider saga that really has legs. I mean, it's not scary at all. It's nice. I think it should stay because there's a lot of garbage there that is also staying. An expert on arachnids weighs in on the piece of public art, giving commuters the creeps that is coming up after sports. some delicious baked goods and support the community. Join Cobb's Bread for the third annual Donation Day on April 1st. For every six-pack of Hot Cross Buns sold, Cobb's will donate $2 to support local charities in the community. Don't miss the annual Surrey Khalsa Day Vasaki Parade on April 22nd. Vasaki is the celebration of the spring harvest, the Punjabi New Year, and the birth of Sikhism, and Surrey's parade is the largest in the world. Expect colorful floats, live music, and incredible food. Global BC Community Hub. Promote your event. Build your community. Global BC Community Hub. Bringing your worlds together. With less than a week to go before Vancouver Canucks Pride Night, the team has yet to confirm if their players will be donning their dedicated Pride warm-up jerseys as controversy and conversation surrounding Pride Night in the NHL continues. The Canucks were in Chicago today taking on the Blackhawks. It was that team's Pride Night this evening, but the Blackhawks decided against wearing their Pride warm-up jerseys, setting safety concerns for the team's Russian player and a newly expanded anti-LB LBTQ plus law in Russia. The Canucks have four Russian players on their roster. We are on Canadian soil and um, Vancouver Canucks are a Canadian hockey team. So that aside, I, I mean, there's certain expectations that Canadians will have. The Vancouver Canucks Pride Night is this Friday, March 31st. The Canucks have been wearing those Pride jerseys for the event every year since 2017. Beautiful jerseys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they play the Flames on Friday. They're playing the Flames. Yes. They looked great on the ice tonight as well against the Blackhawks, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah, they've mm -hmm. actually been one of the best teams in the league over the past few weeks. So no pressure on them, so take that what you will. <laughs> but uh, we're going to start actually with a little bit of off-ice news with the Canucks. They signed NCAA free agent center Max Sasson to a two-year entry deal today. Sasson played at uh, Western Michigan the past two seasons, had 15 goals, 42 points this past season. The Michigan native will report to the Abbotsford Canucks and try to get in some games down the stretch with the AHL club. Sasson is 22 years old. He's 6'1", 185, considered a third-line solid two-way center type at the pro level. We'll see if he 
can make an impact. Meanwhile, the other Canucks in Chicago this afternoon, Aiden McDonough making his NHL debut, another college player, Canucks seventh round pick from 2019, finished his college hockey at Northeastern. He's a big power forward. Canucks penalty kill has been great of late, but they give up a shorthanded goal late first. Connor Murphy's screenshot beats Colin Delia. We got the start today, 1-0 Chicago after one. Not a lot going on in this game. Late second, Canucks tie it. Phil DiGiuseppe is trying to set up Brock Besser, but it goes in off Seth Jones' skate. Canucks will take it, 1-1 after two. Quinn Hughes got an assist, gave him 69 points, breaks his team record for D-men he set last season. Early seconds of the third, Brock Besser rings one off the crossbar. That close to taking the lead at the other end. Hawks on the power play, but Delia robs Tyler Johnson twice. Best saves of the night for Delia, who played his uh, previous four years with the Blackhawks, all his other NHL games with Chicago. So big moment for him to come back there. Then this big hit by Dakota Joshua helped set up the go-ahead goal. After the hit, Chicago's Mackenzie Entwistle tried to fight Joshua, who wisely said no way. And while that was going on, Ethan Bear sets up Elias Pedersen at the side of the net. Pedersen's 34th, and the Canucks have a 2-1 lead. And then a minute later on the power play, Quinn Hughes with the shot, double deflection in front. Pedersen's not going to get an easier one. Taps in the loose puck from just a few inches from the goal line. 93 points for Pedersen, seventh best in the NHL. 3-1. Hawks got a late one to make it 3-2, but Brock Besser seals it into the empty net. Canucks win again 4-2. They are 13-4-1 in their last 18 games and are back to 500 now, 34-34-5 through 73 games. And let's check out some uh, Nashville action here. The uh, Leafs and the Preds. Nashville five points behind Winnipeg for the final playoff spot in the West. Late first, Toronto power play and their big guns combine. Austin Matthews to Mitch Marner. To the captain, John Tavares, 1-0 Leafs. Second, Tavares springs West Van's Alex Kerfoot. He fires home the wrister, 2-0 Leafs. Third period, now 2-1, but Leafs on the power play. Morgan Riley blast is stopped, but Tavares with the rebound. Leafs win it, 3-2, and the Jets and the Flames thank them for that. Bruins and Hurricanes, top two teams in the NHL. Canes rock in their old Hartford Whalers green uniforms. First period, David Pasternak. Loses the handle, but it goes in anyway. 50th of the year for Pasternak, second behind Connor McDavid, 60. First 50-goal Bruins since Cam Neely in 94. Second period, Pasternak again, his 51st. 2-1 Boston, who rested Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron for this one. Canes were down 3-1 at one point, but Sebastian Ajo ties it on the feed from the former Vancouver Giant, Jordan Martinuk. Goes to a shootout, Jake DeBrusque for the win, and he does it, ripping it past Freddie Anderson. Bruins' seventh straight win. They're 16 points ahead of second-place Carolina in the overall standings. The Whitecaps are still searching for their first MLS win this season, but yesterday's goal at the death against Minnesota to get a one-all draw on the road had to feel like a win for the Caps, who now have three draws and two losses through their first five league matches. Simon Betcher literally scored on the last kick of the game deep into stoppage time to give the Caps the point and hopefully something to build on. Every point matters, and I think everywhere we go, you know, we're going with that mentality. So even as, as the clock's winding down uh, today, we're throwing everything at them. You have to, in this league, pick up points. And I think we have a really close group, a group that, you know, will go to war for each other. And, you know, you look to your right and to your left, and, you know, those guys are going to put 110% out there for you. 
All right, third round at the Miami Open. Canada's Bianca Andreescu taking on American Sophia Kennan. Andreescu playing some of her best tennis in a couple of years. Big serve sets up the forehand winner, and she took the opening set 6-4. Second set, Bianca jumping all over that weak second serve. Smashes the return winner to go up 4-1. Kennan dug in to make it close, but Bianca really served well on the big points. Another easy forehand put away here. And Bianca Andreescu moving on to the fourth round at Miami where she will take on Russian Ekaterina Alex Alexandrova tomorrow. Meanwhile, Toronto's Denis Shapovalov taking on the ninth seed American Taylor Fritz. Opening set, Denis with the forehand winner from the baseline led 3-2, but some uh, serving issues, double faults cost him. Lost the opening set 6-4. Second set, Shapovalov. Just couldn't quite win the key points. Had Fritz on the run this entire point, but Fritz with a great stretch to get it back. Shapovalov finds the net, and then on match point, Fritz with the service winner, and Shapovalov falls 6-4, 6-4. He is out in Miami. Felix Auger-Aliassime plays his third-round match tomorrow. Down to the final two weeks of the NBA regular season. Raptors and Wizards. Toronto currently in a playoff spot in the East, sitting ninth. Fred Van Vliet with the fake. Drives, spins it in off the backboard. Beautiful move by Van Vliet. And then with the shot clock about to go off, Van Vliet hits the tough, high arcing shot. Hey, Freddie liked that one. Big smile. He had 18 at the half. Toronto led by 17. Wizards cut the lead to two in the second half, but Toronto pulled away in the fourth. Siakam can't get it to go, but Chris Boucher slams it home. Raps win 114-104. They're 37-38, a four-game cushion now above the playoff bar. WGC match play from Austin, Texas. Beautiful day there today. Sam Burns, who knocked off world number one, Scotty, Sheff or Scotty Scheffler in the semi this morning, taking on Cameron Young, who beat Rory McIlroy. Burns made eight birdies in the match, including this long bomb on the 11th one at 6-5 for his fifth PGA Tour victory. McIlroy beat Scheffler 2-1 in the consolation final. Bronze medal game at the World Women's Curling Championship. Canada taking on host Sweden, a rematch of last year's bronze game, which Canada won. Kerry Anderson, beautiful draw to the button, scores two for Canada there. And then later, Anderson with another great shot, an angle raised takeout to score two more. And Canada takes bronze, uh, bronze again, 8-5 over Sweden. Switzerland won gold for a fourth straight year, downing Norway. Well, perhaps some of the curlers at this weekend's Winter Games in Vernon will one day be representing Canada. It's competitions like the BC Games that can be a real game changer for these young athletes as they explore how good they can be on a grander stage. It's just incredible watching that spark of competition. So for some of these athletes, we do have some teams that met each other for the first time and they've managed to have some magic on the ice as well and have qualified. And it's just a great first step into competition, getting to see your peers from all around the province, especially some of the rural athletes. It's a good way for them to connect and see others that are in their sport. And the games have wrapped up in Vernon, yeah. so congrats to the organizers and uh, all the volunteers who make that happen and give the kids a great experience. Oh, yeah, a fun weekend mm -hmm. for sure. Okay, thanks so much, Barry. Coming up, the ongoing story of the spider that has really got legs. <laughs> We're back in two minutes. Stay with us. Of course. Well, love it, hate it, or fear it, the days appear to be numbered for a divisive giant spider that recently popped up in Vancouver. And as Kristen Robinson reports, an expert on arachnids from another country is now weighing in on the creepy conundrum. Crawling with controversy, 
East Vancouver's unsanctioned spider continues to draw a crowd. Like, I think it's cool. It's just a cool piece of street art. I think it should stay because there's a lot of garbage there that is also staying. It's a lot nicer than all the garbage. That trash, also one of the artist's arguments for having the sculpture created from reclaimed materials, stay. But the city says the arachnid must go because it didn't follow the public art process. Phobia, as it's titled, has also been creeping out commuters on SkyTrain. Oh, there it is. There it is. I mean, it's not scary at all. It's nice. You're not afraid of it? No. Why worry about spiders? That's crazy. Rod Crawford is the curator of arachnids at Seattle's Burke Museum. The spider specialist has little sympathy for those scared of the species. Arachnophobia is very treatable. It's extremely rare for spiders to bite humans, he says, while other myths are dispelled on his website. All those horrible things you believed about spiders are all a lot of funny baloney. I'm not an arachnophobe, so I, I thought it was amazing when I saw it. But, says this counselor, it was installed without the city's permission above an active rail line. I've asked the city uh, staff, city manager, to work with the artists to potentially find a permanent space for it because I think we need more pieces of art like this in the city. Ropes and chains were used to secure the piece. How it would be removed and at what cost is unclear. I would ask the city to chill out. They're being the nanny state. I don't like that, but uh, it's a pact of life these days. The story has eight legs and this is only chapter three. The spider art caught in a tangled web of bureaucracy. Kristen Robinson, Global News. <laughs> okay, the art is one thing. The spider crawling on that yeah. person's hand, no. I'm not Who okay knows with that. how many spider eggs that spider's <laughs> laid in people's mouths to continue. Oh, no, we're good. we're good. I hope There's you've had your dinner. I hope people have eaten already. <laughs> okay. Weather before we go. Some good news before we go. <laughs> yeah, we've got a slight blip tomorrow morning. We could see a few isolated showers, wet flurries for higher elevations. But really, once we get past into the afternoon, we've got those temperatures double digits between 16 and 17 degrees. But Barry, still cold. Mm. Overnight, got to cover up <laughs> you those, do. Cover to, those the, tomatoes. Yeah, one person who's planted tomatoes in B.C. <laughs> cover them. <laughs> That's all for us this evening. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you right back here at 11 o'clock.